Bridges to Bailey, back to Bridges, once more to Bailey, now it's Bridges, here's Bailey, oh my, Bridges, Bailey, Bailey, Bridges, and they scored! Last play of the game, 98 yards to go, and these boys ain't got no more hope than a pig in a parlor. Pitch goes to the right, defense closing in, and he's floating. He's in the air, a human being is taking flight, he's flying to the 50, the end zone, touchdown! The piggies have done it, I turned, I turned, I turned, the piggies win! Oh, and Roger Federer is clearly mouthing the F word at the crowd, and they are letting him hear it. What a disgraceful display from the Swiss. Oh, what's this? He's throwing it back. This could change the sport. A terrible day for fishing. A great day for the fish. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio. And now your host, Shane Ryan. Oh, it gets more and more embarrassing with every passing episode. But my producer insists that I come out to applause. We're trying to some Pavlovian response juju on our listeners to artificially inflate my status in their eyes. And look, I'm all for that kind of psychological trickery, so I stand by it. Hey, everybody. I'm Shane Ryan. This is Apocalypse Sports Radio, episode number five. Very exciting episode. Five is halfway to 10. 10 is halfway to 20. And you can chase that dragon as far as you want to go and get to some really, really big numbers quickly. So very cool. Uh, And what a great show we have lined up for you. Ariana Ely is here. She is my co-host from the Cameron Lazy's Duke Basketball Podcast, and we are going to talk about the allegations against Zion Williamson. Not only that as a high schooler he took money from Nike and Adidas, but that he took money and benefits along with his family from representatives of Duke University. That is some really spicy stuff, so we'll break that down. Miles Cottom, who you might remember from talking about the NFL draft or horses on previous episodes, well, that man is a lawyer, so I've brought him on to break down the lawsuit that the U.S. Women's National Team filed for equal pay, and that was basically swatted down uh, by a California court. So that's really interesting. It's a complicated situation, and he's going to help us get to the bottom of it. We've got Spike's Takes, everybody's favorite, and my friend and also Cameron Lazy's co-host, who I think is going by the alias Arnold Kolb for these purposes. He is a huge German Bundesliga fan, so I'm going to have him on because... The Bundesliga is coming back this weekend. It's going to be one of the few major sports actually happening in the world. And so we're going to talk about that. And you can bet I'll be watching it this coming weekend because I am starved for sports, quite frankly. So that's all to come. Uh, But first, I want to give you the Apocalypse Sports Network spiel. You may have heard it before. If you had, I'm sorry. Fast forward. Do whatever you want. But basically, the Apocalypse Sports Network consists of these podcasts. Uh, There are two a week. One of them, the early one that comes on Tuesdays is a sort of variety show like we're doing today. And the second one is a longer interview where we mine the brains of some interesting figures such as Will Leach, um, Tim Layden, and later this week, Drew McGarry. So you get that, and you also get five blog posts a week that I write every morning. Uh, They include a lot of different stuff, a recap from the night before in sports done in the about last night style that some of you may have enjoyed at Grantland, Uh, analysis, humor, everything like that goes into these blog posts. At this point, we're taking a lot of trips down memory lane and things of that nature. So uh, if that sounds appealing to you, and I hope it does, I would love if you subscribed. It's only $3 a month, which is an incredible deal. Basically like getting free toilet paper at that price. So patreon.com slash apocalypse sports is where you want to go for that. Now, let us begin this episode, as we do on Tuesdays, with a little something I like to call sports trivia. Segment break. 
All right, last week we asked this question. In Season 8, Episode 9 of Curb Your Enthusiasm, a burning apartment building forces a woman to throw her baby from a high window to firemen holding a jumping sheet below. When the baby bounces off the sheet and seems to be heading for the pavement, who makes the diving redemptive catch? And the answer, of course, is Bill Buckner, who made the big error that cost the Red Sox the 1986 World Series, or helped cost them the World Series, to be fair. And Larry David uh, did his best to redeem him on that show. So congratulations. We had a tie this time. Jack Purdy was the first guy to get it on Twitter for his second straight uh, correct answer. And on email, Eric Hall, who does not have a Twitter account, sent the correct answer to me also. We went back and looked at the tape. It was done at the exact same moment in time, down to the microsecond. So they both get credit. Good job, gentlemen. All right. This week, we are on to a new question. And... Before I read it, let me just say that all these questions are part of Apocalypse Sports Trivia, which is a free league I run. So if you're interested in that, reach out to me and uh, you can join and compete against what is now a league of 120 other people. All right. Same thing this week. If you know the answer, Shane Ryan here at Twitter, send it to me, apocalypseports24 at gmail.com. You can also email there. And uh, just like these last gentlemen, Mr. Purdy and Mr. Hall, I will shout your name out. All right. Here we go. As the American Dream Team accepted their gold medals in men's basketball atop the podium at the 1992 Summer Olympics in Barcelona, the bronze medal team stood to their left wearing colorful t-shirts that featured a skeleton dunking a basketball. Name both the bronze medal winning team and the quote-unquote sponsor responsible for the shirts. So you want to name the bronze medal team and the sponsor who got them their t-shirts. Okay, well, good luck to you. And again, Shane Ryan here on Twitter, if you know the answer. Segment break. As mentioned, Ariana Ely is a co-host of mine at the Cameron Lazy's podcast. She knows more about basketball than anybody I know. And if anybody can break down the Zion Williamson madness, it's her. So Ariana, thank you very much for making your first of what is hopefully many appearances here at Apocalypse Sports Radio. I know. Excited to be here. I'm excited that you're doing this. Well, the big news now is that Zion Williamson uh, has been accused of taking money from Nike, from Adidas, from Duke. And before I express my opinions, and I have a strong one, uh, I was hoping maybe you could break down what exactly is happening and how this information came out in the first place. Yeah, sure thing. Um, so just a little backstory. When it comes to these young players who are have hopes of going into the NBA. Oftentimes when they're making that transition, they will hire an agent to kind of help them navigate that. And so Zion hired um, or was working with this agent from, I think they're prime sports is what they're called. Yep. Yep. Um, and he then made the choice to jump to a much bigger uh, agency firm and get his agent through there. And so now, uh, I think her name's Gina Ford is the agent that he was working with before. So now the spurred agent has filed a lawsuit against him and his new agency, um, you know, saying that it was a breach of contract, but then also uh, she's seeking damages for that, but then she's also accusing Zion and his mom and stepdad of taking what the NCAA calls impermissible benefits. So money from shoe companies or uh, schools. Yeah, and uh, and this you nailed it. And the uh, the funny thing is that this is a filing. The, this recent news comes from a filing in this lawsuit from Gina Ford in Prime Sports. 
that's basically like, hey, just so we're on the same page with some basic groundwork stuff, uh, we would like you to admit uh-huh. that you're, you and your stepparents, or you and your stepdad and your mom uh, accepted money, accepted gifts from D, uh, Adidas and Nike, and also like from people that are Duke-affiliated with Nike. And it's this, this funny kind of thing of like, hey, just admit this and we can move forward when, exactly. when actually it's a fucking blockbuster. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so basically, like, <laughs> my impression, Ariana, tell me if I'm wrong. I think it's true. And I think we've kind of known it for a while, uh, even with Zion from some earlier stuff. But basically, I think it's correct what she's saying. Uh, am I right about that? Or what do you think? Yeah, so I think to me... This stage in the game and the way that the whole NCAA is run and how these players are treated, I feel like you can't have a top recruit that isn't getting benefits from some way, shape, or form. Um, And so at this point, like, I wouldn't be surprised. It honestly wouldn't shock me at all if it was the case that he received these things. Mm -hmm. But I also, like at this point don't care Um, but i feel like at the very least like these kids deserve these sorts of things because of the hoops that they you know are put through and the fact that they're not allowed to get anything um but like i don't know you've essentially then has created a system where because it isn't allowed for them to receive these if you're competing with other schools to get these this top (laughs) talent and you know that your like money is kind of based on that you're going to do whatever you need to do to get them to commit to your school so yeah that that's exactly also my opinion And, and it's part of the reason i hate the ncaa so much is that okay yeah you set up a system where i think for the first time in 2018 the NCAA was a billion dollar industry and the bulk of that comes from football and basketball. And the bulk of what makes that money are of course the players and thrown into that. They have a rule that the players can't get paid. So in other words, you're setting up a system where you're telling coaches and schools, there is enormous amounts of money to be paid. It depends uh, to be made. It depends entirely on who you recruit. Uh, and also you can't pay them. So good luck. So what are you going to do in that situation? Well, from time immemorial, the answer Right. As you said, is that they're going to pay them, (laughs) just not in the just in the quote unquote illegal way. And yeah, we're not even talking yet about the immorality, which, you know, is something we've said for a long time of not paying these players who generate enormous amounts of wealth and revenue for these people. Just the simple fact of you set up this system and it's what's going to happen is they're going to be paid illegally. And then the great irony is that the NCAA is in charge of punishing them when, when it does it. Like, is that not the most like screwed up thing uh, in the world? It's absolutely a racket. And like, it really is. So I was talking to my dad um, last week because news, you know, came out in regards to like what's going on at Kansas right now, because the NCAA is like proceeding with uh, their like punishment for them or whatever. And, like, it came back to the same fact where it's like the NCAA can make money off of these players, but heaven forbid these players make money at all, right? Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, they really have created this world wherein they get everything and nobody else gets anything unless they're doing it, you know, under the table, backdoor sorts of ways. And, yeah, and we'll talk more about the Zion thing specifically, but another element to throw in there is that it is an enormous, enormous, enormous industry, millions and billions of dollars to sign these players to long-term shoe deals once they reach the NBA, right? Now, what happens, though, is that all of these schools are sponsored by various, like, 
sneaker companies. So Duke is a Nike school. Kansas, like you just mentioned, and Louisville, who are in trouble, are, are Adidas schools. And Adidas just got nailed by the FBI, which is why the NCAA is coming down on them. Duke is not there yet. And this is, we should say, this is much different than an FBI case. And in all likelihood, it will be settled out of court and the NCAA will pretend like it never happened. Um, but... So here you've got this thing where, okay, you've got these shoe, these shoe contracts are a huge deal in, once they reach the NBA. There is a pipeline that goes directly through the schools with these shoes, and the, the Adidas and Nike run all the summer camps. So guess what? They are going to try to reach these kids in high school, filter them to a Nike school so they can maintain their relationship with them, or an Adidas school, and then sign them on the other end. And so what you see with Zion, even before all this stuff came out, there was an earlier case where they had Nike execs they found their text messages basically saying we need to pay Zion $35,000 to come to Nike summer camps. This is when he was a junior in high school. Uh, and they basically said, we want to do that because we want to stick it to Adidas and all this stuff. So yes, they get Zion to go to these camps. Um, he did participate in them. We don't know if he was ever actually paid. There's no proof, but he did go to these camps along with Adidas ones. And then he did go to a Nike school, Duke, and then he signed a contract with Nike once he got out of school. So along with the NCAA's shit, Ariana, there's also this shoe pipeline, which is just insanely prone to corruption. Yeah. And I know this, it's like this whole world of business and sports melding together in this way. Um, and like, it's one of those things where when it comes to these kids, right. I think there was an article on ESPN recently talking about the role that like moms play and like these young players, yeah, uh, yeah. like making it into the NBA and things like that. But like, I feel like if colleges were going to do right by their players, they would like enroll them in business and management classes so that when it came to navigating like shoe deals or things like that, there would be a like means of them to understand what is happening and have some agency in the process. Yeah. But yeah. I, I feel like it really is business is just seeing like, what are the ways that we can profit off of each level of this pipeline of developing these athletes? And then they just like have their fingers in it in every, every space. Um, like I can remember my younger brother. So growing up in Orlando, he played against Austin Rivers AAU team. Mm -hmm. And like, I mean, you're talking about like, you know, middle school age to high school age kids. And like, they come in totally rolled out in like, you know, Under Armour gear because they were sponsored by them or something like that. So even at the youngest levels, you have this stuff going on. Yeah. And then, I mean, there was a story that came out in connection with the Adidas stuff and the Nike stuff that there was somebody who ran a Nike camp in California and wasn't involved and didn't want to pay players. And Nike threatened uh, just to take the camp away from him. Uh, so the situation is like you need to be doing this because like we talked about, there are so many incentives to getting relationships with these guys very, very early. And so the people that want to play it clean are quickly booted out and you know, I have heard, I don't know if this is true, but Ariane, I've heard this is what happened with Gary Williams at Maryland, that he wouldn't play the game. And it got to a point where if you weren't playing the game, you weren't getting the recruits and therefore your team was not going to be good. And so you would get fired. So the penalty for quote unquote being clean is to become obsolete, which is another just insane little like uh, twist in the, in the whole system they have set up. Yeah, that's, I didn't realize that about Gary Williams, but I mean, you can kind of see how it would end up making sense. And, you know, it's kind of like in the same guise as how John Calipari, right? He's always able to stay above the fray of whatever kind of shady dealings he's been a part of in the past. Right. Um, and so it's like, if you can get away with it and continue getting top talent, then you are still somebody who is like a valuable commodity for a school to have. Um, yeah. It's weird. 
It is weird. And I, I think what's interesting about this is that I think Duke and Coach K have sort of uh, almost like, and certainly not by Duke haters, but there is a certain like halo around them. Whereas like, yeah, these guys do it the right way. Like, you know, whatever. Okay, now Coach K does one and done just like Calipari used to do. But that's all right. He's doing it the right way. Like there's integrity at Duke, quote unquote. Well, no, there's not because I think this Zion thing shows that it's the exact same thing. Like when the FBI stuff came out with Kansas, they were saying that Zion's stepdad was asking for housing, jobs, mm-hmm. and and money from Kansas. And Kansas wanted to give it to him, okay? And then we saw this other stuff with Nike that I talked about where they were going to pay him to go into their summer camps. Well, geez, he ended up at Duke, okay? And if you're somebody whose parents are on the take, which, by the way, I think you and I agree they should be, and it's a good thing, that means probably they got paid by somebody to go to Duke. And, uh, and like we said, if you're getting recruits like this, you're doing stuff like that. But going back to your point, Ariana, I personally don't care. And I think it's great if they're paying them. And I, I've like, I hope coach K like gave him an envelope of cash himself. I would think it was totally fine and good because the overall system of the NCAA not paying them is the real injustice here. So like any money in their pockets for me, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah, uh, totally agreed. Like these kids are putting their like, you know, their bodies, their futures on the line. And like because of this, you know, they have to be in college for one year before they can go into the NBA and actually make money like the potential risk for them for the amount of reward is just so high. Like Zion's injury could have ended his career. He's really lucky that it hasn't, but like all of the potential money he could have earned would have been gone. And so then it's like in the grand scheme of things, the like, you know, drop in the bucket amount of money that he maybe got from Duke that he maybe got, you know, from Nike or whatever Mm -hmm. ends up being small in the grand scheme of all the money he could have earned if he had gotten injured and everything would have been over. Right. And like, then it's like in that regard, if his career had been over, then they probably would have just sued Nike for like all of his potential earnings anyways, because it was kind of Nike's fault. But I digress. (laughs) Yeah, completely, (laughs) completely. Yeah. I mean, that, that is the thing, isn't it? Like another thing in this filing from Gina Ford is like, I want you to disclose where your parents lived in work while you were at Duke, which is implying that they got, you know, jobs or uh, or housing benefits as well. And it's like, yeah, let's imagine, like you said, Ariane, that he tore his ACL or tore both of them or did something that he ultimately couldn't recover from and make money in the NBA. Well, okay, what did he get out of it? Uh, His parents got maybe jobs and maybe housing. Again, we're speaking theoretically. Let's say he collected 35 grand from Nike to go to those camps and then another hundred grand to go to Duke or something that is like drops in the bucket compared to what this guy has made in one year in the NBA and not even a drop in the bucket compared to what he is going to make, uh, you know, over time. I mean, he's going to be a multi multimillionaire, uh, who knows? You know, the sky is the limit with Zion Williamson. So, yeah, if that had ended, all this these little quote-unquote benefits he got are nothing. And right. I would argue, too, they're nothing compared to what he would have gotten even in that one year at Duke under a free market system where a payer was played, uh, you know, compensatory with how good he is and how much money he yep. generates. Yeah, absolutely agreed. And then, you know, like it's also like – pennies when you're looking at the amount of money that either the NCAA or, you know, these shoe companies are making off of these kids as well. And so it's just like the, the means of the NCAA or like folks wanting to seek recourse against these quote unquote impermissible benefits compared with the amount of money they're raking in just seems like ridiculous and like petty, honestly, like incredibly petty. Like here's the NCAA, this like, you know, 
mega giant who's raking in cash from football programs, basketball programs, what have you, all under the guise of we're here to like support amateur athletics and like support the student athlete. And then it's like any moment that their student athletes might be getting something, they, you know, absolutely squash it down. And so it's like, it's really hypocritical to me to yes. say that like a player like Zion Williamson or his family, right, can't get some means of support for the things that he's putting on the line for these different corporate bodies. So I don't know. No, you're I just right. Have a whole problem with the whole thing. <laughs> oh, it, it's terribly flawed, but I will tell you this, this, uh, hopefully this reassures you Ariana, which is that Duke uh, did an internal investigation when they found out that um, Nike reps may have paid him 35,000 uh, yeah. and they found no wrongdoing. So I, I hope you can breathe a sigh of relief at that. Yeah, for sure. I also had uh, <laughs> I was talking to a buddy of mine about this, and he mentioned that he's got a buddy who is a lawyer, and his firm, I guess, covers or is like some means in this whole thing. And they were like, "Nah, we're we're Gucci. It's all okay." Yeah. So yeah, that was another one of those like everything's all right, fam. Yeah. Sort of moments. But it just made me laugh when I read that, that line in the article that Duke investigated and, and like didn't find anything. It's like, oh, really? Like the thing that implicates you? you, you, you nothing to see here, folks? Like, that's great. <laughs> so as we said, Ariana, in all likelihood, this gets settled out of court. But I want to fantasize for a moment um, that uh, that Gina Ford actually is not in it for the money, that she's so pissed off that Zion hired her and fired her within like a month, apparently, <laughs> before CAA, the uh, the creative artist agency, like you said, the Megacorp, like totally poached him. Um, so I just want to like, uh, in my head, I want to like, Gina, Gina Ford is coming for blood no matter what, like you can't buy her off. How does this like spin out and what happens to Duke if this would go all the way uh, and, they, and the NCAA would almost be like forced to act? How do you think that would play out? Oh, man. I really feel like, you know, coming after programs like Kansas, like Louisville, because there was that FBI investigation, I feel like the NCAA had more firepower. But I feel like in this regard, because there aren't those sorts of things, it just ends up becoming this like you know, anecdotal account on either side. And I feel like if you're, you know, rolling up against the like blue blood of Duke athletics and coach K in particular, you're not going to win. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> I, I totally agree. And I, I would even go so far as to say the FBI investigation with the Adidas stuff with Kansas, Louisville, even NC state forced their hands and that they don't actually want to investigate this stuff because their like public image is worse than it's ever been. The notion of amateurism as some holy concept that justifies not paying players except in like useless quote unquote education is is lower than it ever has been in the public mind. And I don't think they want anything that puts like the the sort of microscope on the fact that they set up a system where you can only be corrupt if you if you want to succeed. Mm -hmm. And then their job is to punish you, even though they've forced you into this. So I don't think they want that. And I, I think it would be hilarious if they were forced to go after Duke. <laughs> <laughs> like it's bad in Kansas and Louisville are big targets. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. But like Duke is like the ultimate big target. And then for them to have to go after Coach K who yeah. is like old and doesn't seem to give a fuck anymore. Like yep. it would just be so funny to me because he's already coach K said like, yeah, let the players get endorsement money. He's fine mm -hmm. with that. I, I just imagine the awkwardness of them having to pursue Duke and, and coach K like maybe setting things on fire. I don't know. Yeah. 
No, I could definitely, and like not just Coach K, but when you're thinking about this at a larger scale of like also looking at like who sponsors Zion Williamson, it's Michael Jordan's like brand, right? Like <laughs> yeah, he's under yeah. Jump Man. And so especially with all the press that Jordan's making right now with this documentary and all this stuff, like there's just like the wall of pain that I feel like would like rain down upon the NCAA would be gigantic. And like they would come out losing in this case. And they already like slightly gave away ground in regards to the fact that they decided they were going to quote unquote allow athletes to like earn off of their image, which is a total lie, but I digress. Yep. They already yep. weakened their stance on this whole entire thing because of the fact that they said that they were essentially going to start allowing for some of these things to happen. And so I feel like if they were forced to investigate Duke and Coach K in regards to all of this stuff, they would end up losing and maybe college athletes would end up getting paid like they should be. So oh, yeah. maybe I'm in support of Gina Ford going all out on this. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I want win. vindictive, vengeful Gina Ford just to like Peter Thiel this and like destroy them. Uh, yeah. So well, that's good stuff. And yeah, and you and I talked um, actually on the Cameron Lazies a while ago about the James Wiseman incident at Memphis <laughs> and how same exact thing. Uh like the NCAA wanted no part of it. Um, yeah. and, and it's, you know, funny that they came up with like a compromise solution. And then Wiseman was like, fuck it, I'm leaving anyway. So that didn't like, they do not want brinksmanship. They do not want to be pushed into having an outright fight. And I just hope they are because that's the thing that will kill them. Um, one yeah. funny thing from a UNC fan today that you'll like, uh, I was just chatting and he said, in general, I agree that the players get screwed and I'm cool with them making money however they can, but it's going to infuriate me when this inevitably gets spun by the media as a positive thing about Coach K while other coaches doing the same got burned and for forever labeled cheaters. And I mean, that is like dead on. I, I have to say that's so dead on. It's exactly what oh, would yeah. happen. Yeah, like I feel like in this context, like Coach K would is a like savior of basketball players that he like let them make money in this like corrupt know, system. Like I that's know. how this would go. And like, it's so funny, Coach K. It's so funny because the same thing with one and done. He never took any shit from that, and it was like the devil when Calipari <laughs> did it. When other people did it, it was the devil. And then he jumped on and gets off scot free. And yeah, he would. He'd be Robin Hood now. When yeah. everybody else in the past has been like you know these evil corrupt people that did all that paid these players and yeah he's just like right i don't know there's uh i heard a phrase like walks between the raindrops like coach k really does walk between the raindrops on this stuff yeah that's oh my god that's too true yeah all yeah, right go down as the hero in this whole thing <laughs> if these big sweeping changes like came as a consequence of this and i'm all for it coach k the revolutionary <laughs> k guevara as we call him uh, Ariana, this was awesome. Thank you for joining me and yeah. talking this out. And uh, screw the NCAA, I think is the takeaway. Amen. Amen to that. Segment break. Last week, a district court in California struck down a claim by the U.S. women's national soccer team that they were underpaid compared to the men. What is the deal here? Well, to figure that out, we have brought in the tremendous legal mind of Miles Cottom. Miles, welcome. I think the best place to start would be why were the women suing? What was their logic? And what was the logic behind the ruling saying that, no, this case can't proceed? Sure. Uh, so the U.S. national, the U.S. women's national team sued U.S. soccer, the governing body of soccer in the U.S., alleging that U.S. soccer was violating the Equal Pay Act and Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, and that's V-I-I -I for you Italians. <laughs> um, the Equal Pay Act, obviously, uh, among other things, establishes that you can't pay members of the opposite sex less for 
equal work on jobs, the performance of which requires equal skill, effort, and responsibility, and which are performed under similar working conditions. Basically, you can't pay women less than men for the same work, but the language there is important because it comes up in the lawsuit. Um, so U.S. women's national team sued U.S. soccer, alleging that from February 4th of 2015, which was four days before their first game that year, through November of 2019, U.S. soccer violated the Equal Pay Act by not paying women's national team players the same as it paid men's national team players. It also alleged that U.S. soccer discriminated against them by making them play on inferior surfaces and spending more money on charter flights, hotels, and support services for men than they did on the women's national team. That's the crux of the suit. Now, the ruling that came down on May 1st was a ruling on competing motions for summary judgment. And it's a pretrial motion, and a court can only grant a motion for summary judgment if it finds that there's no genuine issue of material fact or that there's no evidence to support the other party's case. So the two motions here, the women's national team was asking the court to rule that U.S. soccer had definitively violated the Equal Pay Act and Title VII, whereas U.S. soccer was saying the U.S. women's national team had no evidence to support their claims and they should be dismissed. On almost all the claims, the judge sided with U.S. soccer, dismissing mm -hmm. the Equal Pay Claim Equal Pay Act claim outright and throwing out some portions of the women's national team's uh, Title VII claim. All right. So, yeah, and that's really interesting. So the way you make it sound, it's like it has to be definitive in order to say, OK, this cannot go forward to trial. So the judge in this case said, really, there's no evidence uh, to show that the equal pay part, at least, uh, has any merit. Right. You hear you hear courts referred to sometimes as the, the trier of fact. Right. And so this Motions for summary judgment, the standard relies on whether or not there's a genuine issue of material fact. Uh, and in this case, the judge said there wasn't. Yeah. And uh, so let's get into the nitty gritty a little bit, because, uh, you know, in the World Cup final with the women, there were chance of equal pay coming from the stands uh, as they won. This is a really emotional issue in a lot of cases. And yet uh, I'm reading stuff, Miles, that uh, part of U.S. soccer's argument is that on a per game basis in that same time frame that you outlined, uh, the women ended up making more per game than the men did in this case. So to me, there's a lot of confusing elements of this, but l let's start there. Let's start on the merits of the claim. Uh, is U.S. soccer right? Did the women actually make more? Are the women right? Like, what's the story there? Sure. So it's certainly nuanced. The short of it is the judge dismissed the women's national team's claims based on the following fact. During the period in question, the women's national team played 111 total games and earned $24.5 million overall, an average of $220,000 a game. Likewise, the men's national team played 87 games and earned $18.5 million, an average of $212,000 per game. So both in total and on average, the women's national team earned more than the men over the same period of time. But the women were arguing that they received less in per game and competition-based bonuses than the men. And this is largely true, right? It's, but it's not an Equal Pay Act violation. A lot of this is actually by design. So okay. just like every other major team sport in the United States, the players, in this case, the women's national team, are represented in their negotiations with their employer, here, U.S. soccer, by union representatives as part of a collective bargaining process. Right, so the women's national team has its own collective bargaining agreement with U.S. soccer, as do the men. Both are negotiated separately, and this is where the women's case fell apart. So under both CBAs, the players get win bonuses for every game they win. Generally, during this period in question, 
the women's bonus was $3,000 per win, while the men's bonus was about 12,500. So the men are making almost four times what the women, you know, more than four times what the women are making for a win. Mm -hmm. uh, a similar bonus structure was in place for World Cup qualification. Women would earn about $37,500 for qualifying for the World Cup, whereas men would earn almost 109,000 for doing the same thing. Okay. So in this suit, the women's national team was in part claiming that this disparity in bonus amounts proved that U.S. soccer was violating the Equal Pay Act. But remember, these bonuses and all the compensation from U.S. soccer to the men's and women's teams is governed by their respective CBAs. And the women's CBA is a lot different than the men's. So the women have direct financial benefits that the men don't have. The mm -hmm. primary example here is guaranteed salaries. Under the women's CBA, a specific number of players, it's over 20, I want to say 22, 21, 23, uh, they're guaranteed an annual salary of $100,000 from U.S. soccer. Okay. By contrast, the men's team has no guaranteed salaries. Their pay is entirely performance-based. So what it really boils down to, right, is the old cost-benefit question. You know, would you rather have your pay be lower but guaranteed or potentially higher but entirely performance-based? You know, do you want the salary or do you want the bonus opportunities? Now, so what I saw is U.S. soccer is basically claiming, like you said, that these are two different CBAs and that the women negotiated and now kind of wish they had negotiated for more of a bonus structure. Uh, in response, though, I, I don't know if it was Megan Rapinoe or one of their lawyers said that essentially that bonus structure had been closed off to them during the negotiation process and it seemed like there was big disagreement there between the two you know between women's soccer and between u.s soccer um can you can we get to the bottom of this is there it, it's kind of tricky i'm sure to understand but where does the truth lie there is it something they chose or is it something that was fundamentally chosen for them sure so part of the judge's order judge klausner uh in the Central District of California, part of his order cites a fact that uh, U.S. soccer indicates that it offered the same exact uh, or, or substantially similar CBA to the women's national team that it offered to the men's team, you know, that it was largely performance-based. Mm -hmm. But the women didn't agree to that. And, uh, you know, so the, the women negotiated their CBA to include that guaranteed pay, but it doesn't stop there, right? Their CBA includes a number of other fringe benefits that the men's doesn't, including health insurance, child care assistance, guaranteed rest time, severance benefits, and injury protection, where your money's guaranteed, you know, even if you're hurt and can't play. The men's CBA has none of those things. And, you know, so in a nutshell, you say, okay, well, that makes sense, right? The two groups prioritize different things and they get paid accordingly. That's right. Um, and legally, that's what the judge relied on. But I do think it needs to be mentioned that, you know, why the women bargained for what they did compared to the men, especially when they did so knowing that they're an international powerhouse that under the men's terms probably could have racked up a ton of money. Right. You know, and, and I think it's fair to say there's a long history of discrimination against women, particularly in sports. And there's a long history of underfunding and lack of opportunity in women's sports in particular. And I think you can see that manifest itself here in the backstory. Um, you know, the men's national team players all play professionally for their private clubs, whether it's Major League Soccer, the Bundesliga, the Premier League. Those guys are playing professionally and they're making good money doing it. DeAndre Yedlin at Newcastle in the Premier League is, uh, you know, about one point eight million dollars a year. Michael Bradley and Josie Altator in uh, Toronto at, for Toronto FC in the MLS, they're both making over $6 million a year. Christian Pulisic makes between 9 and $10 million a year at Chelsea, depending on the exchange rate, right? So okay, by yeah. contrast, 
the maximum salary for the women's professional league, the National Women's Soccer League, is $46,200 a year, which is a pittance compared to what most of these men are making. Now, U.S. soccer also chips in a base salary between $62,500 and $67,500 for 22 NWSL players, so they get this on top of their salary. But the fact of the matter is the women's players earn significantly less playing club soccer than the men do. And there are a number of reasons for that. Some are legitimate, some are misogynistic. But because of that very fact, the men came to the negotiating table in a vastly different position than the women, right? Men could focus on the bonuses because their needs were met elsewhere, whereas the women needed to guarantee salaries and health insurance for their players. So I think the women did have a fundamentally different approach to the CBA negotiations born out of their private club situations. But ultimately, you know, that's not an issue for which U.S. soccer is responsible. And if you believe U.S. soccer and believe, you know, what the, the facts that the judge cited in this order, U.S. soccer did offer a very similar or the same offer to the women's national team uh, at one point in the negotiations. Yeah. Now, the revenue question is interesting to me, uh, and we're going to get to U.S. soccer in a second, because I I do think there's an element (laughs) or a a sense to this in which they bungled the PR side of it. But we'll get there. They shit the bed. Yeah. Yeah. We'll get there in a second. And of course, they had an executive resign and all that. But the revenue question is interesting to me. And FIFA has um, dealt with this as well. But FIFA can point to some very specific numbers that say, okay, the men's World Cup generates this much and it's vastly more than the women's World Cup generates. And it's pretty cut and dry. And so, you know, there are pay disparities there and there are people fighting to write those, but they can at least point to, well, you get what you earn type thing. Um, I think the situation is a little cloudier with U.S. soccer, Miles, because of the disparity between the two teams. As you mentioned, U.S. men didn't make the World Cup last time. The U.S. women are, you know, these perennial powerhouses who who have won a number of World Cups. Um, I had read that the revenue that they created in a certain period is actually pretty close and that the women may have even brought in slightly more. What, what's your uh, take on that from your research? Right. And, and so I think it's, it's interesting here, and it's noted in the order, too. You, you can't really throw out uh, the fact that the women's national team is light years better than the men's team in their respective competitions, right? I mean, the women's national team is uh, back-to-back World Cup winners, and the men's team couldn't beat Trinidad and Tobago to even make the World Cup this yeah, last time. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it, you know that fact is not lost on the judge here either, right? I mean, he notes in the order uh, one of the when he's introducing the two teams, he says, like the men's national team, the women's national team participates in competitions around the world. Unlike the men's national team, the women's national team has achieved achieved largely unrivaled success, um, which is true. And then I think you're right. Towards the back end of the period in question, uh, the U.S. women's team brought in more money for U.S. soccer than the men did. But a lot of that's not necessarily that's not how they're paid. Right. It's not how they they're don't they do have some performance based uh, incentives in the CBAs, they have some, uh, you know, ticket sales related, uh, bonuses and whatnot, but by and large, you know, the money's coming from different pools. Uh, you know, just looking at, you mentioned the FIFA issue, um, for the 2019 women's world cup, the prize pool itself was $30 million with 4 million of that going to the winner. Mm-hmm. The 2018 men's world cup prize pool was $400 million with 38 million to the winner. So the winner of the men's world cup gets more than the entirety of the women's world cup prize pool. Yes, that's not equal. And there are certain reasons for that. Again, some valid, some 
not. Uh, you know, the viewership numbers are interesting, uh, you know, because they're inverse in the U.S. than they were internationally, at least for the last cycle. So the 28 Men's World Cup was watched by 11.5 million viewers in the U.S. The Women's World Cup was watched by 14.3 million. Internationally, though, the numbers are vastly different. The 2018 World Cup, the Men's World Cup, was watched by over 3.5 billion people, whereas the Women's World Cup was watched by 1.12 billion. So, you know, I, I think that you can't ignore the fact that the men didn't play in 2018 in terms of looking at how these, you know, the viewership numbers, which are tied to sponsorships, which are tied to TV contracts, things like that. Um, but at the same time, you also can't ignore the fact that the men didn't even make the World Cup, yeah. um, whereas the women had won it. So, uh, you know, th there are certainly major issues there with with on-field performance and the perception there. But ultimately, you know, there are there are two CBAs and the women negotiate one CBA for their pay and the men negotiate another one. And that it brings up big union and, and collective bargaining issues here because the CBAs were negotiated by union reps and the judges traditionally across the country are not generally likely to interfere in CBAs because they reflect those union management bargains. There's a level of certainty that each side in that sort of negotiation needs and courts interfering there would set a bad precedent for any future negotiations, no matter the uh, institution. Yeah, and I do think it is worth mentioning that uh, you know these earnings are slightly cherry picked in the sense that the U.S. missed the World Cup, but that is an anomaly. Uh, now they <laughs> obviously it's a big embarrassment and everything like that, but the U.S. has made the majority of World Cups and and probably will continue into the future. So those earnings you know will look a little bit different in the future. However, the closeness of it does as you pointed out, speak to a disparity between what happens in the U.S. and what happens worldwide in terms of how many people are watching. Uh, Miles, really quick, when does the current CBA for the women end? So the current, the women's CBA now, as it exists right now, actually ends uh, at the end of the year next year, 2021, which, you know, based on where this might be heading, I think the results of this ruling and just the case itself are likely going to loom large over the next round of negotiations between the women's national team and the CBA and very well could loom over the men's national team as well. And you know, I do think it's also worth pointing out that uh, a lot of times this is kind of depicted as a clash between the men's and women's team, but that, you know, very far from the truth. The men's team has been very supportive, actually, uh, of the women as they go up against U.S. soccer. And, Miles, let's talk a little bit about U.S. soccer. Um, unbelievably, almost to me, they clouded this issue in one of their earlier filings by basically saying that women are inferior <laughs> physically to men, uh, which led to the resignation of the U.S. soccer president, Carlos Cordero. It doesn't appear to be anything that the judge considered uh, at all, nor should he have in his ruling. Uh, what were they thinking when they did this? I mean, they really they really have put their foot in their mouth uh, in ways that they doesn't seem like they had to do. Absolutely. I, you know, whoever was running PR for U.S. soccer, and really whoever was running it at the time, um, honestly – probably couldn't handle this much worse than they did, right? All they really had to do is point to the numbers of the period. Say, look, you know, the women made more than the men in this period. We had two separate CBAs. The, the women bargained for guaranteed salary and health benefits, whereas the men, men were going after performance pay. All you had to do was not be misogynistic, and they couldn't do that. Um, you know, it, it goes back to the language. Their argument goes back to the language in the Equal Pay Act, right, where you have to... Um, you can't pay members of the opposite sex less for work 
that requires equal skill, effort, and responsibility or performed under the same or similar working conditions. And, right. you know, the U.S. soccer filing then came out and basically said, well, we don't have to pay the women the same because women don't perform equal work requiring equal skill and effort to the men because the overall soccer playing ability required to compete at the men's level is different than the women's level, um, which is by and large bullshit, right? I mean, it's it's – uh, two different games, and you know these women are working just as hard as the men. Um, yeah, I mean, I think there is an argument in physicality, right? I mean, the the fastest men's uh, you know sprinting or running times are generally faster than the fastest women. The weightlifting competition, you know, that the strength and speed argument, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're and talking also, about a fundamentally different game. And it's also um, it's also relevant insofar it's only relevant insofar as it relates to revenue. So yeah, I mean like it's well, oh yeah, sure the games are different. That doesn't matter unless that fundamentally changes how much money is made, but you don't have to go there anyway. You just have to talk about how much money is made. You know, you don't have to you don't have to go to the physical attributes and do phrenology or whatever they're trying to do here. Uh, which is why it just seems so foolish to even bring that up. There's just no reason to Right. And ultimately, you know, they did backtrack on that to the point that in most of their in their Title seven uh, pleadings that they, they kind of backtracked and admitted that it was, you know, equal work and equal skill. Um, they kind of started to fall back on the argument that they weren't treating the men, the women any differently than the men. Uh, and the court did throw out one of those arguments of the women where, uh, you know, the women were arguing that uh, there was a. Uh, violation by the by U.S. Soccer of the Civil Rights Act because they made the women play on inferior fields. They made them play on more on artificial turf more than the men did. They made the men play, and they made uh, you know they wouldn't install uh, temporary grass over artificial turf for women's matches at the same rate they did for men's. Now, U.S. Soccer threw out an argument to that, saying, "Well, you know." In these these games in question, there was a cost issue with you know the games wouldn't generate the same revenue because they were basically a victory lap tour as opposed to you know qualification matches, yeah, um, yeah. things like that. And the court bought that as a legitimate reason, so they they ultimately threw that out. The one area where the women's national team did prevail, or at least didn't have their claims thrown out, uh, was a claim by the women that the U.S. that U.S. soccer spent that treated them differently than the men by spending more money on the men for charter flights and hotels and support services than they did on the women. And by and large, that was true. Uh, over the same period, U.S. soccer spent $9 million on the men's team for hotels and charter flights, and they spent $5 million on the women, despite the women playing more games. So the women's national team called bullshit on that, and then the U.S. soccer excuse was basically, well, the men suck, so they need – you know, more competitive advantages than the women <laughs> to help them play better, even in friendly matches. And uh, so the yeah, court actually yeah. called bullshit on that as well, saying that U.S. soccer's argument was weak and implausible, saying that a reasonable fact finder could conclude that it was not an honestly held belief, but rather a subterfuge for discrimination. So basically saying, look, you know, you can't convince me that the women also didn't deserve or need the same competitive advantages as the men, especially when they were playing in more competitive and important matches. It's also a terrible look, too, isn't it? Going, yeah, well, the women are fine. They'll take care of themselves. We, they don't need any help. Uh, it's the men we must help. Uh, well, that's good stuff, Miles. Yeah, really interesting, complicated situation with the judgment. Uh, any last thing you want to mention here uh, that I haven't asked uh, that might be important to, to consider when you look at this? Sure. So overall, you know, here it's funny because the women were asking for $66 million in damages. Now, I'm not one of those rebellion types that wants to calculate the value that 
Crayola gets from a video of a school shooting. But you've got to think <laughs> that the public opinion beating that U.S. soccer took from this wasn't worth that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I have a feeling that even though they lost this case, the women's national team is going to already they're playing all their games on grass. The U you know, the U S soccer has kind of taken them off turf. I bet they're going to spend a lot more of them and I bet they're going to be much happier with their CBA next time. Absolutely. And you know, they've, they've already said they're going to appeal this. Um, that process is not likely to be very quick. Um, you know, they're still teed up for trial in uh, June or July on that last issue of whether U.S. soccer discriminated by providing the men with, you know, better charter flights and hotels. Um, I, you know, in the area of coronavirus right now, I'm going to doubt that that case uh, gets argued when it's scheduled, uh, given that courts are closed pretty much across the country. But you never know. So this thing's going to, uh, you know, hang hang on for a while, especially if there is some sort of appeal, because that process can take two years or more. So they're going to be renegotiating these CBAs. And I think probably, you know, you can say, well, U.S. soccer won this, so they've got a lot more leverage. But at the same time, you know, the beating they've taken in the court of public opinion probably means, you know, they're they're likely to give in on some of these, these things moving forward. You know, I think you're going to see uh, the terms get better for the women um, just, you know, by virtue of both uh, you know, the, their increased success and the PR, the negative PR that uh, U.S. soccer has gotten from this. All right. Thanks a lot, Miles. Hey, thank you, Shane. Segment break. The German Bundesliga is starting up this weekend. It is going to be the first really major sport to come back after the coronavirus nonsense. Germany at least thinks they've got their act together. So they're coming back. Uh, I have never watched a single German Bundesliga game, but our next guest, Arnold, who is a co-host with me on the Cameron Crazies, is somebody who has been trying to convince me to do so for a long time. So we brought him on as an ambassador. He speaks for all Germans, even though he himself is American. Arnold, welcome. First question for you. Why should a fellow like me, a real red meat and bones and potatoes American, uh, be interested in the German Bundesliga? Uh, why you should be interested in that is because it's going to be the uh, only live sporting event uh, being played at this time. I like that. Um, what about beyond desperation? Are there attractions to this German soccer league? I'm a f man who just started watching English football this past year, and you, via text message, uh, told me I should be watching Germans. And uh, I never really did it, but now I'm definitely going to do it. But I want to know what I'm getting into. Well, tell me why you like the English soccer. Um, that's a great question. Why do I like the English soccer? I enjoyed watching Liverpool's very good players score goals. Okay. So you're you're a goals man. I'm a goals man, yeah. Okay, well then you're going to like the Bundesliga. Uh, Bundesliga is heavy on goals. Okay. Uh, they it, not to say that it's like the the Liga MX, the Mexican league where where they pretty much don't play defense. Okay. Uh, but the Bundesliga, there is defense, but also a good bit of scoring and a good bit of very skillful scoring. I like that. I like that very much. Now, how did you get into German soccer? Was it a series of gateway drugs that left you there, or did you dive right in and skip all the other stuff? Well, I went to, to Premier League first. Well, to be honest, I think like most people, uh, you know, several, several iterations of World Cup before uh, getting into club soccer – then Premier League and, and Bundesliga at about the same time. But there are other differences. Uh, so do you like the physical nature of the English game? 
Um, physical in in what sense of uh, grabbing and holding and the roughhousing? The the men touch each other a lot. <laughs> um, I would prefer look look. I would prefer in any sport a more wide open game. So the Bundesliga has that too. Ooh. Uh, so you uh, do not see the same profusion of yellow cards uh, or red cards uh, for rough play. They seem to stay away from each other. There's not a lot of clutching and grabbing, uh, not a lot of hard tackles, which which is not to say that it doesn't happen, mm-hmm. but uh, it happens less frequently. I like that. And in terms of teams, to put my ignorance aside for a second, my fake ignorance, I know Bayern Munich is very good. I've heard Bayer Leverkusen is good. I know the name Schalke. Uh, I probably mispronounced. Who'd you hear Bayer Leverkusen was good from? I'm. I don't know. I have no idea actually. I know they're named after the aspirin company, though. Right. Uh, they're kind of like a, a mid-table, mid-to-upper table team. Uh, oh, I at least didn't they know are that. now. Uh, they okay. weren't very good, I believe, about uh, ten years ago. Yeah, that's probably when my knowledge base is from. So, so it's Bayern Munich. Who are the other really good teams? Well, you've left out Borussia Dortmund. Right. 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 Uh, which is the uh, perpetual also ran. That is not to say that they have not uh, progressed and and won many uh, many domestic titles, uh, uh, cups, and things like that. But uh, uh, their last trip to the Champions League finals ended in defeat to uh, uh, Bayern Munich. I think that's right. You'll have to check that. I'll check. I know it. Bayern Munich and and Borussia Dortmund played in the Champions League final probably seven years ago. Okay. Who else? Okay. Uh, so in, in terms of your top level teams, uh, you know, B- Bayern is kind of, Bayern Munich is, is kind of far and away the, the best. Okay. Uh, the upstart team is RB Leipzig. So this is, uh, this is interesting. Most clubs are, uh, owned in some communal way. Uh, not exactly like the Green Bay Packers model okay. of like share ownership, but uh, there is more of a communal ownership aspect um, or a non-corporate ownership. These are actually sporting clubs. Okay. RB Leipzig, however, was... Uh, purposely created by the Red Bull owner. Um, the name, uh, so that there are, there are you know, many iterations of, of the Red Bull team, right? There's the New York Red Bulls. Yeah, yeah, right. The team in Austria is RB uh, Salzburg. And I believe that they are just called Red Bull Salzburg. Uh, you're not allowed to do that in the Bundesliga. Ooh, okay. So they're called RB Leipzig, but the RB does not stand for Red Bull. <laughs> okay. It's, it stands for Rosenballa or something like that, uh, which, you know, means something like sports ball or, or I'm not a German speaker. Okay. Uh, but uh, uh, they got around it and, and people kind of hate them for this corporate structure that is, is uh, you know, Bringing, bringing more big money into the game that, that people don't want to see. Okay, interesting. So they're the hated... Um, I don't, I'm trying to think of a comparison. I don't no, need they're, to... they're upstarts, though. So no one no one is... This club was like completely gutted and resurrected, mm-hmm. uh, you know, 10, 15 years ago, maybe less than that. Uh, and they're also East German. 
so you'll notice that most of the uh, most of the teams are from you know the former West German territory. Okay, which makes sense, right? Uh, when you think about economic development and uh, it's like, but RB Leipzig um, is from the east. Interesting. So do they have a big, is there still an East German identity as such? Uh, here we are 30 years later. I think there is. Yeah. I think it, um, I think it really has to do with the differing levels of, of economic development in the, in the two regions. So are they kind of like trying to be the working class team of all East Germany? I don't think so. Okay. <laughs> um, looking at the schedule, is there anything that sticks out to you uh, this Saturday of like a good, this would be a good match introduction for people who are new to German soccer? Well, I'm going to have to check the fixtures list. Okay. Uh, the first thing that you need to know uh, is that instead of the hyphen or dash uh, that's used in scoring, they tend to use a, uh, a colon. I see that on the page I'm looking at here. Oh, which is Bundesliga.com. So there you there you have it. All right. So let's look at this week. Uh, also, you know, I don't know how much they do this in, in the Premier League, but they uh, uh, tend to, to say that it's, you know, round whatever. This looks like it's round 26. So it's the, the 26th matchup. Okay. Uh, instead of just saying, well, these are the games uh, this week, they, they actually, you know, it's more like uh, NFL where they say this is week 16 or, or something. Like that. Got it. All right. So what do we got here? All right. So uh, Borussia Dortmund versus Schalke. This is a classic. Really? Uh, so Schalke is um, now, I believe, sponsored by... Um, Oh, what's the name of that? Uh, the Russian oil company, Gazprom. Gazprom, yeah. Right. So Gazprom, of course, has has uh, you know recently held Europe hostage in, in terms of natural gas uh, production. Uh, so that that's not very popular. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you can see that. Schalke, Schalke now plays uh, uh, in this stadium that's kind of like very uh, stylized. Um, they were the miners, so there's all kinds of like uh, rock and mine iconography. Okay. But Borussia Dortmund is from the other side of the Ruhr, uh, Ruhr River, um, and they were more of a, an industrial uh, uh, metal-producing type area. Okay. But the, the two are very close, um, and they are bitter rivals. And Schalke uh, is is bad because I like Borussia Dortmund. Interesting. Oh, well, that's very exciting. So that yeah, that seems like the best game of Saturday, maybe best match, I should say. Um, yeah. The Leipzig uh, team is playing Freiburg. Are they any good? Freiburg, Freiburg. I don't think they're very good this year. Okay. Um, interestingly, the the Berliner teams are. I was just going to ask uh, that. They're not. They're not the best. Uh, Hertha Berlin is. I think like consistently four through eight, uh, something like that, where they finish up. Um, but no, there's uh, there's not really like a uh, the same thing where like the capital city, like uh, the Yankees or something like that. Yeah, or all um, the all the London teams and or or Paris right. Saint Germain or whatever. Uh, right, right, right. Interesting. Yeah, I was going to ask because Bayern Munich, who is playing on Sunday, is playing another Berlin team, FC Union Berlin. So it doesn't sound like they are. Uh, 
they're no, worth, U- worth the trouble. Union was Union was recently promoted, um, so I don't believe they are very good. Okay, good to know. And then Monday, I'm looking. This seems like it may be a good one too. Werder Bremen versus Leverkusen. Werder Bremen. Werder Bremen. There you go. Uh, so Werder Bremen has uh, some interesting American talent. Um, uh, the one guy is coming to mind is is Josh Sargent. He doesn't play very much, uh, but they have a few other uh, kind of up up and coming players. Uh, not to mention uh, Claudio Reyna's kid, who plays at, uh, at Borussia Dortmund. Also a good American uh, talent. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so like there are a lot of up and coming folks. The, the Reyna kid is only seventeen or eighteen, and, and of course uh, uh, Pulisic played at at Borussia Dortmund. Uh, so it's a place where you can kind of see uh, up-and-coming talent. Bremen, I don't think, is that good this year. Uh, they're usually a, at least a respectable uh, team. Oh, you're right. No, no, they're actually in relegation zone, looking it up. Yeah. Oh, never mind. Um, Leverkusen is fifth, just, just as you described earlier. Um, yeah, so yeah. Yeah, teams to look for, Borussia Mönchengladbach. Uh, they have been kind of outkicking their coverage this season. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, those win expectation things, you know, they do all that in soccer where, you know, how many goals you score, how many goals you give up, how right. many games you should have won. Yeah. Uh, they're one of the, the luckier teams in that regard. Um, but they have a, a rich culture and, and a rich history uh, as well. Um, I, I think actually that much in Gladbach and, and Frankfurt match is going to be pretty good on Saturday. Excellent. Um, I will tell you this, based on the fact that I like Kolsch beer, that's my favorite kind mm-hmm. of beer, and also there's a wonderful jazz piano concert um, lo- recorded live, I think in the 70s, by Keith Jarrett and Koln. My mm. initial instinct would be to, like, if I'm going to adopt a team, it would be Koln. Is that a bad idea? Well, how much do you like to see the team win? I do enjoy that. Yeah, so that's not going to be a great choice. <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, I, so like actually, Col Colin and, and uh, uh, Mainz, who are up against each other, uh, you know, Mainz is uh, uh, also a very big historical town. Um, uh, those are both kind of perpetual mid-table teams. Okay. Um, always respectable. I think they've both been in the Bundesliga for, you know, very long stretches of time, but uh, do not have a, a lot of winning pedigree. Got it. And now, let me ask you this. Who are the best players? I mean, who are the best of the best world stars uh, in this whole uh, first league? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I mean, Bayern has kind of your, your collection of uh, – uh, hot talent. Yeah, uh, they're led at the front by uh, Lewandowski, Robert Lewandowski, uh, who's aging, but uh, uh, still quite a prolific scorer. Um, I would look out for a new Bundesliga talent, a young man named Erling Holland, um, okay. who plays at. Uh, um, Borussia Dortmund, he just joined the team, and and I think in his first, uh, th- this, these were the matches before the, the shutdown, uh, he came over in the winter window, and I think he scored something like six or seven goals in his first three games. It, it was really wild. Um, okay. Uh, but he's a big, strong, uh, northern European uh, young man. Uh, very exciting. Um, 
RB Leipzig has Timo Werner, uh, who's a, a you know much discussed transfer target. Um, yeah, I, I think those are. Uh, there's some aging talent too, uh, and some of the other teams, okay. uh, folks you you might remember from uh, from a few few World Cups ago, who are still kind of kicking around. Um, Is Yop Stam still around? No idea. <laughs> he's not. He's actually like a 50 year old. Uh, I remember him as a big tall man, but apparently he was from the Netherlands instead of Germany. So there you go, Arnold. Let me ask you this as a concluding question, uh, and it's not an easy one. Um, Take me, give me a psychological profile between an American, just your generic American sports fan. There's three of them in front of you. One of them prefers Spanish soccer. One of them prefers English soccer. And one of them prefers German. Uh, How are they different? Why are they the way they are? Hmm. Okay. Let's start with the Premier League fan. Great. They like men touching other men. Okay. A lot. All right. Really just kind of hugging and wrestling uh, each other. They like a lot of mud and dirt to be involved in in that situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, They might like Dick Butkus. Okay. For instance. As a sort of, Uh, yeah. No, no. I I think... uh, uh, you know, Premier League is kind of a, uh, a rough brand of soccer. And I think until you watch other international styles um, uh, or other international leagues, you don't really get a sense of, of how much kind of pushing and grabbing and shoving and like kind of out and out um, assaulting uh, that's going on in a Premier League game. Okay, uh, great. They're more, you know, grinded out defensive. As someone who likes a defensive style... Uh, of football, maybe, or someone who likes college basketball, uh, my uh, Premier League. Interesting. Okay, that's good to know. Yeah, I don't like that. Uh, so it sounds like I'm going to like German better. What about Spanish? What's the What's the deal with those guys? Oh, so they either like Real Madrid or Barcelona. Okay, that's it. <laughs> I don't. I don't think there are American fans of any other club. They're playing these without fans, right? Yeah, I believe so in Germany. Okay. That's good. Uh, so, you know, um, some of your listeners, uh, based on their ethnic heritage, uh, might be uncomfortable with stadiums full of, of Germans chanting and singing. Yeah, right, right. Uh, so I think playing these matches without fans might be uh, a good way to get introduced uh, to the game itself without having to worry about, uh, you know, that whole thing. Lovely stuff, uh, Arnold. Thank you very much, and uh, I wish you a pleasant weekend watching German soccer. Thank you, uh, and uh, good luck with uh, with the apocalypse. Segment break. Last but not least, we have Spike Friedman. You guys know the deal by now. Spike pays six thousand dollars a month to subscribe to this. That's a lot of money. He's a very very wealthy man. And he does it so that he can come on once a week and give his own take. Now, some of these takes you may not agree with, some you may find horrifying or very offensive, but he gets to do it because he has money. Spike, welcome. Ah, Shane, it's an honor to be with you from international waters, as always. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm coming at you from the second solarium in my yacht. You got to get a yacht with multiple solaria if you're going to get a yacht at all. You know, 
Yeah, I well, I, I don't know, to be frank, but it, it sounds nice. Yeah, well, and I'm grateful because sports are coming back. Yes. For me, that's the most important thing about this quarantine, lockdown, quote-unquote virus situation is the absence of sports and how quickly they can come back. We need our decision-makers across the globe prioritizing sports coming back at all costs as quickly as possible. And I love to see that it's already started, personally. So that's my take, is that I am excited for German Bundesliga football. Did you know I'm a big German guy, Shane? No, I did not know that about you, Spike. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. Well, so I, you know, I'm a self-made hundred millionaire, give or take. I don't want to, you know, claim any numbers officially on the record in a way that could be traced back to me, even if I'm in international waters when I say them. So whatever I say is not inadmissible in court. Okay, so don't try to use it. Wait, it is inadmissible. It's not not inadmissible. Right, right. It is inadmissible. It yeah, cannot I be admitted. I want to be very clear about that. So I have hundreds yeah. of millions of dollars. Maybe. But, and I made that myself. We all know that through my various concerns, land, mining, air, sea, you know, all the big ones. Yeah, the, but the big elements. my father, you know, he did a really good job in East Germany providing security apparatus in a certain, you know, contested time. And so for me, what I get excited about with Bundesliga football is finally, for the first time in decades, the Bundesliga has a great ground-up East German team in Red Bull Leipzig. And for me, a lot I know a lot of your listeners are out there being like, oh, I want sports. I know German Bundesliga is back. What team should I root for? And for me, the <laughs> only choice is Red Bull Leipzig. Why? They're owned by Red Bull. Great company. You want a team that is owned by a company. Now, look, a lot of people are going to tell you it's not Red Bull. It's RB Leipzig. Come on. It's Red Bull, baby. You love it. You get wings. Now, I tried to graft wings onto my back once, and it, look, <laughs> it didn't work. I, I was trying to fly too close to the sun to prove that you can, and okay. it just didn't work for me. But you got to love an energy drink. You got to love owning a soccer team. So that's great for one. Two, again, East Germany. Look, my father's work is controversial in the city of Leipzig, but I got to spend a lot of time there undercover as a wee boy, you know, sort of working <laughs> angles as a young confidence boy. That's what they called me, a convoy. A convoy, sure, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so I personally brought so many people of the community of Leipzig to quick and brutal justice that for me, getting to watch the remaining citizens of the city have this like organically grown soccer team really become great for me that's really great i feel pride in that because you know if it weren't for me there'd be a lot of communist infidels etc who'd be rooting for this team and i wouldn't like it but i know that i'm part of why that is a pure fan base so real quick uh, spike was your dad an arms dealer for the stasi i have to ask I'm in international waters, and so I can say yes, and okay. you can't okay. tell anyone. Yeah, I, w I would never. I would never. I mean, this, of course, the podcast will be listened to. But well, of course, yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. podcast can be listened to. But sure. it, again, it cannot. If you're a cop who listens to the podcast, you have to tell me. Otherwise, it's entrapment. Yeah, it's a. Uh, this can't be used against you. International waters. Sure, sure. 
So, so uh, Red Bull Leipzig and the final is the reason to like RB Leipzig. Uh, Timo Werner, what a great striker, you know, really great player. Uh, they got a great dynamic system. So they got it all. So they got it all. They got the connection to the Stasi. They are owned by a company, unlike the cowardly other teams in the Bundesliga that are half owned by the supporters. Gross, <laughs> disgusting. Rich companies should own teams, and if not that, rich people should. And Timo Werner. See, they 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 got it all. They got it all. All right, Spike. So to sum up, root for RB Leipzig. They have Stasi connection, owned by rich people or by a rich corporation. And just to go back quickly. Um, you're not concerned about the human cost of the coronavirus. You want sports to come back. I think your words were oh, at, at yeah, any yeah, cost. Yeah, and also when you meet anybody who's connected with German football or like a German person, lean into being a big RB Leipzig fan. <laughs> okay. Be like, I am really into their authenticity. Like you should lead with that in that conversation because it's going to bring you closer to your German friends. Perfect. Well, I know you're a very busy man, Spike, and, uh, you know, sailing around the world, international waters. We really appreciate, as always, uh, you coming in to drop a take on us. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. And I paid for this, so I don't have to thank you. Segment break. Thank you all so much for listening to episode number five of Apocalypse Sports Radio. If I were you, I would go to iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you like to listen to podcasts. I would subscribe. I would leave a five-star review. It only takes a second. And I would tell every single person I know or have ever met, which, to be honest, is going to take you a very long time. But I think it's worth it if you had a good time here today. And again, uh, patreon.com slash apocalypseboards is where you can go. Subscribe for $3 a month. You can get these variety shows every week. You can get the longer interviews and five blog posts each week as well. So thanks again. Have a wonderful weekend. Enjoy the German soccer if you watch it. And stay healthy, my friends. Bye-bye.